Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Bradford faces a grim situation. The peril of smallpox lies over the city. No one can tell at this stage whether it will be checked. Unfortunately, since vaccination ceased to be compulsory 14 years ago, the number untreated runs into millions. They are now vulnerable. Realising the position, thousands in other cities are following Bradford's example. To be vaccinated is the only protection. Clearly, the peril is recognised by the majority of people. The spread of smallpox must be prevented. So I'm going to ask you a question, Steve. Mm. Now, let's just assume there's no time, it's not laws, whatever. You have some land and I want to come get it. Right. Now, I'm willing to do anything. In fact, I'm going to kill you for it. Okay. This is off to a great start. (laughs) Is there a right way or a wrong way for me to kill you to get it? it, let's, Let's put it a different way. Is there a worse way for me to kill you than other ways. If I stab you, shoot you, poison you, or is it all the same? I must say, at this point, I'm worried about what this pathological life does to you. But I would say, honourable, an honourable way, a duel would be a good thing to go sneaking <laughs> That gives up. you a chance. No, yeah. no, no, no. No, okay. So where are you going with this? Okay. So <laughs> our story starts in 1763. There's several Native American tribes laying siege to an outpost in in. Uh, Fort Pitt, which is modern-day downtown Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. (laughs) The colonists and local traders are stuck and hiding within the fort. But there's also an outbreak of smallpox within the fort. Now, there is some correspondence from the higher ranks outside the fort theorising about what they could do. Could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of Indians? We must, on this occasion, use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. A very (laughs) English-sounding member of the fort. Now, there are lots of rumours, historical rumours, that smallpox was used as a weapon to try and reduce the Indians, families, everything like that. I can only find one firm piece of evidence that a trader who was also a a militia captain by the name of William Trent, who was negotiating at the time with Native American diplomats, when he wrote in his journal, Out of regard to them, we gave them two blankets and a handkerchief out of the smallpox hospital. I hope it will have the desired effect. But this is the only evidence I have that it happened. And I was trying to work out, when you're in the territory of massacres and genocide, is there a scale of badness, a scale of evilness? Or can you actually cap a ceiling and just say, it's all bad? Is this worse than them just killing them? I must say, though, to be giving people blankets and handkerchiefs, normally a sign of succour and support. 
when they carry smallpox. That's low. So, Travis, for this episode, looking at smallpox, just how old is it? As far as we know, it goes back as far as we have records. So we have uh, the pharaohs actually have evidence of smallpox infections and, and ep- uh, uh, epidemics that were going on. So we have Ramses V. His mummified body, his face actually has pustules and scars on his face of smallpox. As believe he died of smallpox, uh, except for there is a sort of a, a, a wound at the back of his head that throws a little bit of a curly one at that that happened either just before his death or just shortly after. So it's not quite clear, but it's thought he certainly had the scars or the pustules on his face. There was evidence of him having, uh, of the family, and at least six royal family members dying um, around that time. Ramses II had many smallpox scars on his face. Uh, in, in fact, the CDC has a, on, on their website a categorised list of where it actually sped, spread throughout the world. So the 16th century, the increased trade between Korea and China with Japan introduced it into Japan. The 7th century, the Arab uh, expansion brought it into Africa, Spain, Portugal... The 11th century of the Crusades extended it further into Europe. Uh, we've got, you know, 15th century going into West Africa. We've got the 16th century, the European colonization and African slave trade brings it to Central, Af- Central and South America and the Caribbean. 17th century, we get it into North America. So with increased human contact, increased smallpox came along. And how devastating was this disease? very devastating. It had a mortality rate of about 30%. So even in the 20th century, they, we had 300 million deaths, which averaged about 4 million deaths per year for the 20th century. So this was a huge issue, uh, global public health going through. There are two clinical classifications. There is the, the virus is called variola. And variola is from Latin, meaning spotted. So it's called the variola virus. And in that, we have two clinical associations. There's variola major and there's variola minor. Mm -hmm. So when we look at variola major, this is the main diagnosis with regards to it. Uh, People would have an incubation period of, you know, 10 to 14 days. So you'd be asymptomatic, but then you start to get a fever and a rash, and what they call, it's not a term we often use now, prostration, which is effectively lying flat, feeling very weak, unable to move. Right. So these people had, again, case fatality rate of up to 30%. A significant component could be they would go into shock, the virus would spread throughout the body. Those who didn't die, 65 to 80% of them would have scars, often on the face, and 30 to 80% of people in the household would become infected as well. So very transmissible. When we look at that, there is a different version as well called variola minor. Right. Now, it's just as transmissible, mm-hmm. but it has a much less severe infection and less than 1% of the case fatality rate. It's a different strain of the virus, and it still gives you smallpox, but it has nowhere near the devastating effects of what we call variola major. So they classify variola major into four categories. I won't go into depth in it, shorter to say that 90% um, 
is called ordinary smallpox. That is what most people got. 5% have a, a modified smallpox. That's a bit of, that's still variola major, but it's less severe. They have 5% flat smallpox. Um, this is a slowly developing smallpox infection. The problem with that is it has a 50% mortality rate. And then there's the worst of the worst, which is fortunately less than 1%, called hemorrhagic smallpox. Uh, this causes bleeding into the mouth, the skin, everything like that. It's usually fatal within weeks. So, so what was the clinical cause? I mean, what do people experience? So with, with the experience, uh, often it was people just generally, up to two weeks, not feeling any different. And then they would start to break out in these, have these rash, have this fever. Uh, there are some, unfortunately, disturbing images online of children where effectively you just see day one, day two, day three of photographs. And this is because of documented evidence of just them getting what they would say. So it's a macular rash. So it's a flat rash that would go papular. So it would become bumpy. The bumpy one would become vesicular. So have fluid in it. After fluid day, about four to five days. And then at day seven, they would become pustules. So pustules meaning get pus in it, become uh, cloudy. And then often that would break um, and then become scabs. And then they have chances of a secondary infection with regards to that because you've got open skin wounds at that time. And it can cause blindness. So this was a significant disease and the world is better off without it. It certainly is. We'll come back in a moment and let's look at how we did manage in those most recent times in dealing with smallpox. Welcome to the exploration of concepts and controversies in modern medicine. One of a series of programs dedicated to examining the uncertain, candidly recognizing that much of today's teaching is necessarily based upon opinion, and that the opinions of eminent physicians in a given field vary widely. My name is Dr. John Neff, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Johns Hopkins. It is my feeling that it is no longer necessary to perform routine preschool or infant smallpox vaccination. I'm Samuel Katz, Professor and Chairman of the Department of Pediatrics at Duke University. I believe that our nation's freedom from smallpox rests upon the widespread use of smallpox vaccine. So Travis, as you said before the break, we don't have to worry about smallpox as much now. But in those early days, how did the medical fraternity manage before vaccines? So the, the short answer is they actually managed very well. Um, the the disease in itself was rife, um, but they had a technique that they called, it's called variolation. Um, and this was actually developed, it seems to be out of China and Asia uh, into the area of Ottoman Empire. Um, and it's called a procedure, as I say, called variolation. Now, this is where uh, some... People, I'm guessing, I'm, I'm not sure if you call them doctors or uh, healers, would expose a person who is susceptible to the infection with a, hopefully, less severe version of the virus. So what they would do, 
the evidence suggests that, you know, if you read the articles, it says, oh, this is thousands of years old. We're not quite sure about that. The first evidence you really find comes out of uh, China in the 16th century and, and the Middle East and Africa in the 17th century. But what we do have evidence of is, is from uh, Lady Montague, who was a wife of a British ambassador to the Ottoman Empires in, in the 1720s. And what she saw was that a person who was a healer would get... Uh, and in person who was infected mainly with a, a lesser strain, so to speak, or less affected, they would have the pustule on their arm. They would then get something to inject, take out some of the material, and go to an open wound of the person who they wanted to be either infected or exposed to it and put it into that wound. So that the person was on purpose exposed. They also have other ones where they would get ground up scabs of a person uh, who had been infected grounded into powder and then either inject it into again another wound or blow it up their nose and so this was a method effectively of early vaccination yes so why lady uh, montague took such an interest is she had had smallpox before her brother had actually died of smallpox and what they found while she was in constantinople was that it reduced the death rate of people from smallpox from about one in three, so, you know, 30%, mm-hmm. to about one in 20. So a significant... That's dramatic. Yes, yeah, very significant. And so she ended up having her son and her daughter do it. That's an act of faith at that time, surely. Look, it's, it's remarkable, and this story gets even more... Uh, amazing when we when we dig into it she ended up convincing her husband who was lord montague and the prince of wales at the time that this was a procedure worth investigating more so what do you do in these times well you get six prisoners on death row to say you're going to volunteer or maybe they volunteered we're not quite sure and unfortunately some of the volunteers also include orphans where they did this variolation experiment they got exposed to a virus And then they were exposed to the full strain of smallpox. Mm -hmm. However, they did that and none of them got it. So they were fortunate. Like it's one of those things where I I sort of amused and thought, oh, no, no, geez. And then they've got death row anyway. But they were actually... They were pardoned. They were pardoned. Mm. They were given their freedom. But it wasn't without its risks. And so we even have an example of King George III in in 1783, whose four-year-old son Octavius had this procedure, but he ended up dying. Right, which in the early days of experimentation with vaccinations, this is part of us learning safety and safety. Now, of course, I wouldn't expect the king's son to be involved in milking cows or anything like of that ilk. He would have lived a very charmed life, but isn't there some link between cowpox and milkmaids? There, there are, and, and this is where the, the most prominent person in the literature is, is what most people have come across, is Edward Jenner. He wrote in 1798 in Inquiry. He's, it's the most famous one of them all. He, he had 23 detailed case studies um, with experiments where he mapped out the linkage between people who were exposed to cowpox. So cowpox is, you would get these pretty much little vesicles that would become also just like on, you know, pox from smallpox on the udders of cows. Uh, 
and then milkmaids, who is their job to milk the cow, they would be uh, milking the cow, but they would get these similar lesions transferred from the udders to their hand. However, these people seem to be protected against smallpox. Interesting thing about this is Edward Jenner isn't the only person who have noticed this. The, we have accounts of a farmer about over 20 years earlier. Uh, he was from Dorset in the UK. His name was Benjamin Jesty. And he noticed the same thing, that milkmaids had a reduced infection rate to smallpox. And they were able to care for smallpox patients without getting the infection themselves. So he saw this and thought, well, let's test it. So he got his wife and his son. Of course. <laughs> he used a darning needle from one of the cowpox lesions mm-hmm. on a cow's udder. And then he injected his wife and his son. His son seemed fine. Yes. But his wife got ill. And then it came public. And he was ridiculed for that. Effectively, it was said, not only did he try and make his family ill by risking their health, they were probably going to grow horns as well. Yes, of course. Now, the, the interesting thing is Edward Jenner and himself, even after he had published that, was still ridiculed by the press. And there, are, there is literature of other people recognising this in Europe. But Edward Jenner gets the, the monumental amount of credit. And the lesson I take away from this is never be the partner or child of a monumental figure from medical history. Well, that's the thing. The interesting thing about that is uh, it's probably good not to be uh, the gardener of a monumental figure because his most famous case is actually that of uh, Sarah Nelms, who was a milkmaid at the Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. and James Phipps, Mm -hmm. who's an eight-year-old boy and was the son of Edward Jenner's gardener. Sarah had a lesion on her hand and he then took the material from the lesion, put two cuts on James's arm and put the material in that arm. James had some minor swelling, fever and a few chills, but otherwise recovered. Six weeks later, Edward injects James with full-blown smallpox. Mm -hmm. And? There was... (laughs) He noted no disease followed. It was an interesting success, but still one of those ones where it's just like, I'm amazed it happened. Now, there is a nice part to that story. When James Phipps was uh, newly wed many, many, many years later, Edward Jenham bought him a house uh, in the village as a gift of thank you. Um, I'm not quite sure if that makes up for it. (laughs) Well, there's a tip for a little reward for medical trials these days, isn't it? I'd do it if I got a house out of it. So they knew it worked, but they didn't know why. And so what we know now that they didn't know was the variola virus. So it's a DNA virus. And when we think about it, it's actually quite a large virus. And this is a hard area to try and conceptualise. But when we measure things, it's measuring in what we call initially meter, millimeters, micrometers. And so when you look at it, it's, you have one meter is a thousand millimeters. Mm-hmm. But then when we get from a millimeter going down, it's one millimeter is a thousand micrometers, is a, then a million nanometers. 
And so when we talk about viruses, often we're talking about nanometers. I'll try and say this as best I can. When we're looking at the virus, the size of it, if we lay it end to end, 2,200 viruses will fit in a millimeter. Now, we're not talking three-dimensional, mm-hmm. just end to end. So that's how... Now, it's a, actually quite a large virus. If we put bacteria in there, let's say the average bacterium is about two micromillimeters, you'll fit about 500 bacteria in that. And that's why under the light microscope, when we've got a 400 times magnification, you can actually see they're small, but you can see microbes with regards to bacteria. But there's no hope of finding any viruses. And it wasn't until the electron microscopy came across when things are so small that we then were able to see the virus. So what do we know about the virus? It's a large brick shape. It's double-stranded DNA, and it's got a, what we call an envelope around it. Uh, it falls into the, what we call the genus of orthopox virus. And then one step down from that, when we talk about species, so a smallpox or the variola virus, the species of that has relations in that of monkeypox, cowpox, and vaccinia. So the genus is orthopox virus. In that, the species of those viruses in that collection, we have variola virus, smallpox, and cowpox, which are very closely related. So if you're exposed to one, the antibodies that you produce will most likely protect you because it's such a similar virus in structure and way from what they're doing. This is early vaccination, primitive and a little bit scary, but that's what they were doing. Something that looks so similar will probably provide you with protection. They didn't know that's what they were doing, but that's what they were doing. Wow. And now many of us are thankful smallpox has been eradicated or has it. We'll come back in just a moment. Exactly 40 years ago today, on the 8th of May 1980, the World Health Assembly officially declared that the world and all its peoples have won freedom from smallpox. Smallpox is the first and to date the only human disease to be eradicated globally. Until it was wiped out, Smallpox had plagued humanity for at least 3,000 years, killing 300 million people in the 20th century alone. Its eradication stands at the greatest public health triumph in history. As the world confronts the COVID-19 pandemic, humanity's victory over smallpox is a reminder of what's possible when nations come together to fight a common So let's bring the story of smallpox to some sort of closure, or variola virus, as I know we should be referring to it as. Um, There are actually specimens of that still in existence somewhere on this planet. Whereabouts? There's two places. So once once all the programs was going through, there's there was four places initially uh, in the. Uh, 1980s. There was four stocks that had it. There was the US, there was England, uh, Russia and South Africa. So these guys kept the stocks of the virus. Um, 
A few years later, though, uh, England and South Africa, so in 1984, either destroyed their stocks or transferred it to an approved facility, which was uh, either the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, in the US, or the State Research Center of Virology and Biotechnology, a Vector Institute in, now let me say this correctly, uh, Koltsova in Russia. So these now are the two institutions that have stores of the variola virus. So there are stores that we have around the world of vaccine. Uh, the vaccine is actually, again, when we're talking about the, the family, the, the, the genus and the species, the vaccine's made from the, uh, another associated virus, the vaccinia virus, uh, which again, closely resembles, ha seems to have no real side effect, short of every once in a while, you can have a very you know, severe reaction to it. But unfortunately, that's, there is always that case, a um, very small percentage that people have a reaction. But uh, yes, they are the two. It's hard to know what to think of that. Uh, yes, <laughs> it makes me a little bit nervous in the current climate that they're the two nation states that have stock of this. <laughs> but if we just look back to when, or maybe the world was or wasn't more harmonious, this eradication program to eradicate smallpox, that would not have been a cheap exercise it, it wasn't and and the the eradication actually started uh planning the the world health organization wanted to eradicate it in in 1959 uh at that time there'd been uh up to three generations of vaccines as it develops to get more refined better less side effects uh and but the problem was it was plagued by you know lack of funds personnel you know, commitment from countries, uh, you know, and even shortage, shortages of, you know, vaccination donations. Uh, but what we found is over time, uh, certain countries started to eradicate it uh, on their own volition. So in North America, it got rid of, uh, was in 1952, so that was before the WHO uh, claimed in Europe in 1953, South America in 1971. Uh, Asia in 1975 and Africa in 1977. So, and their definition was they had some pretty rigorous testing to, to do it, identify a case. So to be designated as, you know, country free, it had to be no cases for two years. Mm -hmm. And they were able to get there. Hello, it's Travis here. During the original recording of this episode, I misquoted the cost of the eradication program. So I'm here to correct the record. The total cost of the program from 1967 to 1979 was estimated around 300 million US dollars. Now, back to the episode. The cost, equivalent cost from 1970s to now would be about a billion dollars. Which we, we need a big figure, like a Bill Gates <laughs> or someone like that to step up to the plate. It's, it's interesting because you, you look at then the donations to the World Health Organization, uh, the top one at the moment, uh, US for, uh, you know, uh, over $100 million, China for $50 million, you know, these are the donations happening this year and clearly we're in different circumstances now. We are, but I want to look into the future because the world is poised again. COVID-19 at the time of recording, talk about vaccine being hunted for to be developed and hopefully to be in place worldwide. Do you think, knowing what you know, that we have what it takes as a human species to do to COVID-19 what we've done with smallpox? The answer is I don't know. 
the optimistic side of me says, yes, we could do it. The other side of me says, well, we still have polio about. There's three countries where polio still exists. Uh, that's um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria. This is a disease that is devastating. Most countries have eradicated it. There is a very effective vaccine. Even the World Health Organization, their budget of you know, 2020, 2021, have about 890 million put aside for that eradication program but we're still not eradicated. The, the interesting thing for me with regards to COVID is it would depend on how effective the vaccine is, whether you can eradicate it, but for the most part, for the majority of the population, it's actually not a severe illness. So people will feel unwell. Uh, they may not even feel unwell, in which case the people who are most at risk will probably be the people targeted to try and protection for the vaccine. Mm. But then everyone else will probably either get a mild form of it. So from my perspective, I don't think COVID will be eradicated, um, probably because for the vast majority of the population, it might be nothing to a mild nuisance. It's just for those people who are at risk, um, it could be a really severe illness and potentially fatal. Um, I think the protection will go for the people who have those risks. Do you think we have it in us as a society, as governments, as everyone looking at it, that this achievement could be done again? I'd like to think we could, but we have a little way to go. Part of me wants to say to the nations holding the stocks of the variola virus, a pox on both your houses, uh, but I hope we can. And, but one thing I do hope more deeply, if we go right back to the beginning of this conversation, the way smallpox was used as a weapon, my deepest hope is that we don't turn to using COVID-19 as such in the future. The smallpox eradication campaign had one crucial tool that we don't have for COVID-19 yet, a vaccine, in fact, the world's first vaccine. But although a vaccine was crucial for ending smallpox, it was not enough on its own. At the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States of America joined forces to conquer a common enemy. They recognized that viruses do not respect nations or ideologies. That same solidarity built on national unity is needed now more than ever to defeat COVID-19. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.